Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and once again this month we will be discussing uh, the security briefing. And joining me now from the United States is Dr. Nerses Kopalian, the author of EVN Security Report. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Thank you for having me, Maria. Uh, this month for March, actually, um, you called the security briefing the geopoliticization of democracy and the problem of illiberal peace, which I do want to uh, expand on. But before that, again, as we always do, uh, to try to put the security context into its proper framing for March, um, Baku is basically uh, attempting to deteriorate the security environment by amplifying its rhetorical aggression, engaging in expansive troop movements and buildup in border areas, and focusing its operations uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Artsakh, and as we saw with the, the killing of the three Armenian police officers and the violation of the line on the line of contact at the uh, Stepanagert-Lisagor road, excuse me, a strategic road. And of course, as we know, the European Union monitoring mission is on the ground. They're here for two years. And uh, we have also seen Baku and Moscow uh, heavily criticizing the EU MM um, presence here. Now, you write that Baku's frustration is because its capacity to amplify uh, its hybrid warfare objectives is being curtailed due to Western diplomatic pressure and the EU MM. Now, and you also say that this has created a potentially volatile and high-risk configuration. Uh, can you expand on that, please, for our viewers? Of course. Um, so as we've covered extensively in our security reports, uh, Baku has utilized a wide range of an expansive continuum of hybrid activities. And uh, it tends to fluctuate from low intensity to very high intensity, which then translates into uh, these cross-border incursions that we see them doing. Uh, those are part of uh, sort of two general trends. One overarchingly is part of coercive diplomacy, and the other component is kinetic diplomacy. Kinetic diplomacy is when they fundamentally use force to get diplomatic outcomes. So Baku's objective uh, from the very start had been some form of course of diplomacy. But through time, as the Russian security architecture collapsed and as Baku saw that they could push the envelope much more with the Russian presence there, they have transitioned to a very robust notion of kinetic diplomacy. And so we saw them doing what they're doing uh, from September 2022, uh, so on and so forth. Now, with the European presence, coupled with continuous uh, pressure from uh, Western diplomatic uh, centers, uh, this has limited Baku's capacity to engage in the level of hybrid activities and the late level of kinetic diplomacy that he got used to uh, prior to the European civilian mission showing up. And so in this context, if your objective, right, is to utilize certain toolkit to achieve certain objectives, and now that toolkit is constrained by virtue of an exogenous actor of a new element, this is contributing to uh, Baku's frustration. This is why we've seen them kind of come out and become very, very critical of the European civilian mission. Uh, and of course, we saw this also being aligned with the Russian position. Both Baku and uh, Russia are accusing the EU of being a destabilizing force, which in of itself, of course, is ridiculous because EU may be criticized for a lot of things, but destabilizing force isn't one of them uh, in that context. But we can understand the frustration. Their reasons, of course, are kind of different, right? Uh, Baku's reasons, as we explained, is that the European presence limits Baku's capacity to use all of these mechanisms 
to gain some kind of a leverage over Yerevan. So it diminishes their uh, capacity to utilize their power parity. For the Russians, the dynamic is completely different. Russia has always monopolized the negotiation process in the South Caucasus. It is a form of leverage for them. It creates dependency on the actors who are negotiating and is a form of projecting regional power. So with this role being diminished and the Europeans and the West stepping in and acting as negotiators, this kind of suggests sort of a decline in Russian hegemony. And so the Russian response has been very, very aggressive and visceral. Indeed. And again, just uh, to, to explain a little bit further how Baku is continuing to um, deteriorate the security environment, despite all of these uh, deterrent factors, if we can call them that. First of all, you know, the ongoing false claims that Armenia is transporting weapons uh, into Nagorno-Karabakh, sort of reifying their hybrid operations, intensifying their maximalist position on the forced integration of the Armenians of Artsakh into Azerbaijan and amplifying its disinformation campaign. And th they seem to be really good at, at, at doing that. So, and, and as I said at the top, Baku's shifted from attacking Armenia uh, proper uh, because of this constraint and implementing hybrid warfare in Nagorno-Karabakh and by doing so is trying to create new facts on the ground. And again, as a reminder, the Lachin corridor continues to be blocked uh, by Azerbaijan, um, basically, you know, strangling 120,000 uh, people's uh, ability to, to live in freedom. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talk about this each month, and I think it's important to keep uh, pushing this idea that what is the role of the Russian peacekeepers in this? It was seen as an important deterrent at the beginning, right after the November 9, 2020 trilateral statement that ended the 2020 Artsakh war. Um, but the last two years, we've seen something completely different happening, haven't we? So uh, what we're seeing is that the the sort of the false illusion of security that the Russians have provided to Armenia for the last two and a half decades, uh, that is basically become sort of, you know, re-establishing re itself with the peacekeepers. We initially thought they would be a deterring force, but it turns out this was in of itself an illusion. And so as we note in the uh, security report, Russian peacekeepers operate more like an impotent observation mission than an armed contingent. And uh, so in that context, we are not seeing them uh, fulfilling their responsibilities of maintaining the peace or, or curtailing Azerbaijan's activities. Uh, we could go around and, and, you know, blame any actor we want as for, and, and say, you know, they're not putting enough pressure on Baku to curtail their behavior. But Russia is the only one with boots on the ground. This was the main reason why they have boots on the ground. So if you're going to have boots on the ground, but not provide the level of security that the vulnerable population is reliant on, that creates all kinds of complications. And Azerbaijan has done a very good job adapting to this. They have developed a mechanism where through their hybrid mechanisms, they slowly and methodically keep pushing the envelope with the Russians. And they keep seeing that the Russian response is almost non-existent. What you see generally speaking, is Russia reporting a ceasefire violation and then saying they're investigating it. So we already know there are probably hundreds of investigations that are going on. But even you can't take that seriously because the, the, the peacekeeping force does not have the mechanisms to engage in this modality of investigations anyway. So we are seeing a lot of performative politics, uh, uh, where we're sort of say, as opposed to substantive peacekeeping operations. Um, so those are kind of being the dynamics. Now, 
why is Baku using the mechanism that it is using, right? And you listed four or four very important ones. Uh, there are two explanatory factors. One, we've seen that uh, Baku's traditional success through caveat diplomacy has collapsed. Uh, what the European Parliament did, uh, the declaration that he made, the, the robust criticism that he had uh, of Baku, this has not existed in the past. So this really, really caught uh, Azerbaijan off guard. The growing Western criticism that we've seen, the alignment of new countries such as Canada joining the picture and uh, supporting Armenia's democracy and being very critical of Azerbaijan's aggressive behavior. So the narrative has shifted. Because of that, we see Baku becoming more frustrated. And so they are attempting to, again, uh, uh, establish new facts on the ground so they can say, well, whatever the case may be, right, this is the reality. We have to negotiate on this new reality. And they keep shifting the reality. So this whole discussion, for example, of reintegration, right, or forced integration, that's just a fancy term or euphemistic sugar-coated term for ethnic cleansing. We all know that. You can't forcefully integrate a people. Uh, so the outcome is very, very clear. Now, no one is taking that seriously. By no one, we mean, you know, all, all the negotiating actors involved, none of them have come out and said, this is something to consider. In the same way, when Baku for the longest time was talking about this quote-unquote Zangas record, or everybody told them, this is basically, uh, uh, it's not going anywhere, right? But what these does is the, the Baku basically throws stuff against the wall, hoping that something would stick. Now they're introducing this whole discussion of the West and Azerbaijan. Right? These are sort of small obstacles that they create to kind of complicate the process. Um, but it's not resonating with the West. Um, in that context, to, uh, to some extent, uh, compensate or mediate for those problems, what they're doing is they're operating in their domain of strength, which is Artsakh. So the West came and told basically Baku that Armenia's sovereignty is an informal red line because of the rules-based order and all this stuff, right? And then you put the EU observation mission on the ground. Even Baku has complained about this. We've covered that. Uh, so what Baku has done is basically made the argument that, well, Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh is within our internationally recognized territory. Therefore, we have more of a leeway here as opposed to the Republic of Armenia. What was supposed to curtail that leeway in the Gornokarabagh in Artsakh was the Russian peacekeeping contingent. And so this is why you fall back into a continuous problem. The European presence or the diplomat diplomatic pressure from the West can somehow cocoon and protect Armenia to some extent. But when it comes to Artsakh, minus the humanitarian catastrophe, they remain limited. And when, you when we talk to Western diplomats, their first response is, we don't have boots on the ground, Russians have boots on the ground, therefore the dynamics are different in Artsakh. Right, well, speaking of Russian boots on the ground, um, this month Russia came out and rejected uh, Nikol Pashinyan's claim that Russia is the security guarantor uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh's security based on the November 9 trilateral statement. Um, so has Russia abdicated or will it fulfill its obligation? These are the questions that, um, you know, that are floating around at the moment. I mean, we could concede the fact that Russia abdicated its responsibilities towards Armenia and the Armenian people uh, for, for the last two years. Uh, with Artsakh, it becomes very interesting because there's a sense of self-negation, a bit of a contradiction here. If you're a peacekeeping force, right, by virtue of being a peacekeeping force, an innate understanding is that it is your responsibility to secure the peace. And so serving as a security guarantor towards the Artsakh people, you do that by 
preserving the peace. So if Russia's argument is that there, it is not their responsibility to secure the, to guarantee the security of the Artsakh people, that's another way of them saying it is not their responsibility to keep the peace. If that is the case, then what is the purpose of having a peacekeeping contingent? And so there's obviously there's some level of contradiction here. Um, what, but we know what I think uh, Moscow's point was. What Moscow's point was that uh, stop blaming us or stop throwing the responsibility upon our shoulders every time Baku carries out an operation or every time they do something in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Artsakh. So what Russia is attempting to do with this discourse is basically say that we know what our responsibilities are and we will act on those when it contradicts Russian interests. But if it does not contradict Russian interests, do not expect us to go out of our way to protect the population of Artsakh or the borders of Artsakh as understood with the November 9th agreement. So again, we are seeing sort of, you know, uh, this developing situation where uh, Baku keeps moving the goalposts and Russia is also somewhat moving the goalposts. Uh, because if you asked anybody after the November 9th ceasefire, everybody would have told you what Pashinyan uh, assumed was a logical conclusion. Russia is the security guarantor of the of the, the, the Artsakh population. But now Russia comes out and says, no, that's not our responsibility. Then this, of course, begs the question, well, then what is your responsibility or why do you have a presence if you don't consider that to be your responsibility? So there's a bit of a, a conflicting thing, development here. Right, indeed. Now, I, I want to switch over to the so-called peace process and talk about liberal versus illiberal peace. But before we do that, just one quick thing. We talk about this every month, Nurses. And that we also understand that Armenia's options are very, very limited. Uh, it, why the West or the rest of the world should care about Nagorno-Karabakh and, and so on and so forth. But Armenia has continually played the democracy card, right? That we are, um, you know, a burgeoning democracy, the only democracy aside from Georgia and the region. And so, with Baku's and Russia and Moscow's sort of alliance here. Uh, Armenia is um, has changed its strategic interest and in advancing its democracy narrative, and this new doctrine of democratizing its security now has Armenia geopoliticizing its fight for democracy. Can you explain that? Yeah, of course. So um, there, there, there's sort of a general misconception that you have, uh, generally speaking, a democracy versus security discourse. That's not the case. The, the literature, the research completely rejects that, right? The two are actually intertwined. This is what we talk about democratizing security. Now, in that context, however, uh, hard power still defines security. So we should not have any illusions on the fact that becoming more democratic or getting democratic sympathy from outside actors is going to cover is going to address our hard security issues but at the same time security is a diverse and multi-tiered phenomenon and so the other component that qualify the cost of security that are not specific to hard power this is where the democratization narrative works and so where we have seen a success uh, of the whole thing of geopoliticizing uh, democracy has been our success in allowing for the collapse of caviar diplomacy. So for the last 25 years, we have to be honest about this, right? Armenia in every Western capital was losing the argument. Azerbaijan was continuously winning, right? And, and so caviar diplomacy was very, very successful. Yet in the last six, seven months, as the dynamics have shifted and we've done a successful job in advancing the security, uh, security and democracy narrative, 
that dynamic has changed. So the success can be observed through these collapse of caviar diplomacy and the relative sympathy and support we're getting from Western partners. Again, that is not a silver bullet. There are no silver bullets in geopolitics or security thing, studies, right? But we have to qualify these developments consistent with uh, what their objective is, and that remains the objective. So when the prime minister says democracy is a strategy for Armenia, that's not just another way of saying that. It allows us to enhance and deepen relationships with given countries who value those dynamics. But it doesn't mean that just because you're a democracy, these countries are going to come and uh, uh, provide security for you. What they will do is they will provide uh, diplomatic security to the extent that's tenable. Okay, They would uh, utilize uh, uh, soft power or dynamics to the extent that is it's in the, that is in their interest. So that is an incremental improvement in relation to what we had two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. So this is what we're talking about in that in that context. But uh, when we say Armenia's options are limited, uh, that is up to us. I would argue that Armenia right now has a lot more options than we've had in the past. Uh, the fact that we've seen a sort of a very tacit but a methodical pivot to the West suggests that Armenia has actually diversified its foreign policy. It is developing robust relations with Nordic countries. It is developing strong relations with Baltic countries. We're already becoming sort of these quote-unquote democratic uh, uh, poster child of, uh, of Europe. And we have seen for the first time in a very, very long time that the United States, at least if they're not fully siding with us, they are becoming a lot more sympathetic towards us and being a little more rigid towards Azerbaijan. Again, these are not solutions. But when you look at Azerbaijan having built a narrative over 25 years and having allowed them to achieve what they achieved, the trajectory is always long-term with these things. So those are the dynamics in which we could qualify it as. Um, now, is that going to help your security? Well, we are seeing some repercussions of this, right? Uh, do you have a European presence that even Azerbaijan concedes is limiting our, our, uh, their activities? Uh, is that mission going to grow? Very likely. They're, they're, now there are reports that uh, Poland is also sending observers into the European Union mission. Uh, so when the two-year time uh, uh, sort of you know deadline comes, is that going to be extended? Very, very likely. Is the mission going to go from 100 to possibly 200? Very, very likely. And so in that context, those developments on the ground are an extension of what we're talking about. Um, now, I, I understand everybody's concern is when are we going to get weapons, right? Or, or who's going to sell us weapons? Those are two different phenomenon. And this is what we need to understand. Um, you know, soft power diplomacy, robust diplomacy, democracy narrative. These are sort of, you know, multi-layered processes. But your hardcore security dilemma, no one's going to solve that for, for you. You can, you can have partners. You can diversify those partners. But in the end, this is your responsibility. So coming sort of coming back to, the, to your discussion of, uh, you know, options, now we have a lot more options than we've had in the past, right? We have, we're, weapon, we're purchasing a lot of weapons from India. We could go into the international market and buy weapons uh, if we need to do, and we are kind of considering that. We have sort of a sympathetic ear from certain European partners that we don't like to talk about right now that are considering doing this. But a few years ago, it was basically only Russia and no one else. So in that context, I think we have to some extent diversified it. Do we have it to the extent that we want to? Of course not. But we have to have expectations that are commensurate with our realities. Indeed. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. One can certainly complement the other, and it just advances or expands your toolbox. 
Okay, now we need to talk about illiberal peace and liberal peace. Um, I'm gonna just let you take take it from here because you're gonna explain it. Uh, but but I think it's an important um, an important discussion that we should be having. So please go ahead. Um, of course. So these concepts, uh, I kind of you know wanted to interject into the main uh, discourse, mainstream discourse that we have in Armenia, uh, and, and a lot of this comes from the securities and peace literature and scholarship. So the content tends to be heavily academic. But by bringing this into the mainstream discourse, its applicability becomes a lot, lot more sort of, you know, tenable uh, and understandable. So there are two tracks that we have in Armenia right now, uh, or in the region right now, that are defining the peace negotiations. There's a Russian-led track, and then there's the one that's led by the European Union, supported by the United States. And scholarship shows that usually when we talk about negotiation tracks that are being led by non-democratic states, these kind of uh, uh, these modalities uh, uh, of negotiations are what we call illiberal peace building. And these forms of peace, build, peace building are fundamentally defined by what's known as authoritarian conflict management. So in these modalities of peace building, you precisely see what we've been seeing in the last two years, where we have an, where you have an arbiter that creates all these platforms all these negotiating models, all of these engagements, but fundamentally it leads to more insecurity as opposed to producing more security, which is where Armenia finds itself. Furthermore, what we see is that illiberal peace building does tacitly encourage coercive and kinetic diplomacy, which is precisely what Azerbaijan has done. And so when you look at sort of these dynamics, right, they are part of the sort of illiberal uh, conflict, uh, authoritarian conflict management model. They don't f uh, produce peace as we understand it, which is equitous and just peace. What they do pr produce is some element of no war, no peace, uh, a certain modality of a frozen conflict. And that obviously is both unhealthy and, dang and dangerous to developing relations that could potentially create a peaceful process. And, you know, uh, my colleague Anna Ohanyan, who's a very good friend of EVN Report, uh, her research has demonstrated that, you know, what, what is known as Russian peace, whether we look at it in uh, South Ossetia, whether we look at it in Transistria, whether we look at Nagorno-Karabakh, they have created very fragile and unstable situations. So these are not conducive to long-term and sustainable peace. This is why the illiberal peace track as advanced by the Russians simply has not worked. And furthermore, it has led to a deterioration of the security environment, especially for Armenia. So therein lies the problem of illiberal peace. Now, the broader research demonstrates that liberal peace building, on the other hand, does produce positive results. And the European Union, the United Nations, uh, various international instruments have been demonstrated to produce a sustainable peace, even in one of the more, more rather intense uh, conflicts, uh, uh, you know, whether it's uh, ethnic conflict or civil wars. You know, there's examples from Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, Bosnia, East Timor, that liberal peace building did produce sustainable, peaceful outcomes. And so this is the model that research demonstrates the track that Armenia should be selecting, which is the one that's led by the European Union and the United States, because liberal peace building has a track record, an empirical track record substantiated by the research. 
whereas uh, authoritarian conflict management produces the other results. So this isn't sort of, you know, a, 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 an assessment based on individual opinions, right? This isn't based on sort of, you know, choosing one side over the other. This is based on what the empirical evidence suggests. Liberal peace building is conducive to sustainable peace. And so based on these assessments, right, we need to have a more healthier discourse in Armenia as to why we should choose the track that we're choosing. We shouldn't choose the liberal track because it's led by the Europeans or want to be quote-unquote pro-Western. Or we shouldn't choose the, uh, uh, the pro-Russia track because it's pro-Russia. No, we should understand that an illiberal peace track does not produce peace. And this is precisely what Azerbaijan wants. Whereas uh, a liberal peace-building track does lead to sustainable peace, which is precisely what Armenia wants. And so when so when you see when you see sort of a lot of the discussions that come out, whether it's the Europeans that are talking about this, whether it's the Americans, you see them talk about notions of just peace, or we talk, see them talk about equitous peace. This is part of the terminology in the discourse. I can't remember the last time when Russian uh, negotiators used those concepts. And of course, Azerbaijan is purely talking about victor's peace and uh, forcing their terms. And again. Those are byproducts, it's not accidental, those are byproducts of authoritarian conflict management that we have seen in sub-Saharan Africa and different parts of the world. And so when we look at the research, right, what is conducive to Armenia's strategic interest and long-term peace and prosperity? And that is why you select the track you select, because that is what the research suggests. Okay, indeed. But then there's the Russian factor if you choose a liberal piece, and I think this is an important thing, but before before you you you, you talk up about that, again, for our readers, I think, or listeners, sorry, um, an illiberal piece, you write, which is, which I found very interesting um, for Azerbaijan, allows it, allows for the continuity of low intensity hybrid warfare and this conflict persistence that Aliyev needs for his own domestic audience. For Russia, obviously, provides them with leverage and a controlling stake in the whole process and and where it's not about establishing what you called a just peace or an equitous peace but allowing russia's interest to supersede the interests of the two warring parties yeah precisely and, and this isn't anything new right the russian model uh from the uh, mid 90s all the way to now is defined by creating frozen conflicts in the post-soviet space and so when you have frozen conflicts, right, these are basically byproducts of uh, authoritarian uh, conflict management, where uh, the, the frozen conflicts do not produce a peaceful outcome, therefore they could break out any moment. When two parties are stuck in a, pre thing, in, in a uh, um, frozen conflict, they become dependent on the arbiter. In the post-Soviet space, whether it's been in South Ossetia and Georgia, whether it's been in Nagorno-Karabakh, Russia has remained a dominant arbiter, and this gives them extraordinary leverage. So if you have peace, the frozen conflict is over. If the frozen conflict is over, the leverage that Russia has is no longer there. So this is not a question of good and bad. It is in Russia's strategic interest to have frozen conflicts and not sustainable peace. Because if you have peace, they lose leverage. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we have peace, the Russian peacekeepers have to go. If you have peace, right, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia would no longer need Russia to mediate. In this context, Russia loses immense influence and posturing and leverage. So it is not conducive to their interest. So this is why we use the term authoritarian conflict management. This is precisely what it does. And it's understandable because this makes sense to them. 
but from the different uh, from, from Armenia's perspective, this is no longer sustainable. So you know, prior to 2016, when we, were, when we were under the illusion that if war should break out, we have the upper hand, this logic made sense to us. We have to be honest about that. But post 2016, we slowly realized the power disparity has become so robust that that modality is very dangerous, and we saw that in 2020. So frozen conflict and authoritarian conflict management is not something that is conducive to Armenia's interest, specifically and especially when you talk about democratizing countries. But this is exactly what Azerbaijan wants. And we've talked about this, right? We've, we've written about this. Azerbaijan is a country that, has, that suffers from ontological insecurity. And these types of regimes do not and cannot have peace. And this is why the uh, illiberal peace model works for them for different reasons and works for Russia for different reasons, but it fundamentally does not work for Armenia. Okay, but, and as a final question, uh, as always an impossible question, if we do want to achieve an equitous peace or a quality peace, which you say um, can be achieved when there's a fusion of, you know, supranational, uh, um, uh, multinational negotiation process, my question again is, as long as it's in Russia's strategic interests to maintain the conflict as it is, how does Armenia move forward? We must understand that what, this is not the Russia of a year ago or a year and a half ago, right? The, the Russia after uh, September, uh, February 2022, right after the invasion of Ukraine, is a diminishing regional hegemon. They are still the hegemon, but their power influence has diminished. And the vacuum that we have seen develop in the South Caucasus has been filled by the Western presence, the physical presence of the European Union and diplomatic pressure presence of the, uh, of the United States. In this context, uh, Russia's interests in the region and their vigorous advocacy, those interests, do not have the same uh, magnitude as they've had in the past. So there is a window of opportunity at this point to address this. But Russia can still be incorporated into the process. Um, you know, for the longest time, they were involved in a process when the Minsk group was around, right? I mean, it's still around, but it's not functional. Yet even the Minsk group, Russia was known for being obstructionist. That was not accidental. The Minsk group was designed to be a liberal peace-building process with an illiberal actor in the midst. Uh, that was just a natural byproduct. But there are, you know, uh, various models where you could have a liberal peace-building process, and Russia can be integrated into this, for example, by saying, you know, you're, we are going to need some kind of a peacekeeping force like NATO has in Kosovo or in Bosnia, and Russian peacekeepers, for example, can be integrated into the security architecture of illiberal, uh, excuse me, of liberal peace building. Well, as always, thank you, Nerses, uh, for all of these uh, insights and for the, the valuable uh, briefing that you're putting together for UVN Report. And I encourage all of our readers uh, to go and read it. And uh, we have all of the briefings that we started uh, back in September 2022 each month, and we will continue doing it. Hopefully one day we will stop doing it. Uh, because there will be no need for it. But up until then, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Maria.